If you have your Bible with you, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Matthew. You can go ahead and put that up on the screen there, Tom. To the book of Matthew in chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 13 to 17. And, and I want to say this as I share tonight and tomorrow and, and in the context of communion tomorrow, uh, the Holy Spirit's going to say a lot more than I'm going to say right now. So please have your journal at ready. Write down things the Holy Spirit is whispering to you. The other thing I'd just like to say is, is the gifts of God are for the people of God. If the Lord, if you're looking across a crowded room, all of a sudden I had a, an old Broadway song. Your face across a crowded room. Okay. If you're looking across a crowded room and you see someone and a scripture comes to mind or an image, I'd like you to please uh, lean into that rather than do the hesitant thing that we do. Lean into that. Write it down and make sure when we create moments to pray, you go find them and you pray for them because it's one of the things the Holy Spirit's going to do. So I basically just said you don't have to listen to a thing I say. But I'd like you to kind of listen to both, <laughs> both hands. Because I want to come uh, to, to uh, a passage in the scripture that I think forms the foundation for what it means to be a follower of Jesus, most essentially, and then what it means to be a leader of anything in the body of Christ. This idea that we're going to see in the scriptures, in my mind, it was it, the prophetic words all surrounded it last night. I'm sitting back there going, yes, yes, I can't wait to speak on this. Okay, tomorrow. We're going to speak on it tomorrow. Prophetic words about the love of God. Mark was singing out, pour out your love into us. Pour out your love. This is common language for us in the vineyard, isn't it? And we think, well, maybe we, we're, we're too lovey-dovey. We talk too much about love. Have you been with other denominations in the body of Christ? Talk about love, friends. It's one of the gifts that God has given this movement to be very attentive to the emotional affection of God for people because it is transforming and healing. I'm a big fan of theological richness and truth, but one of our commissions, I believe, as a vineyard movement is to create spaces where people can have an emotional response to the emotional affection that comes to them from the Lord. The fondness, the sheer adoring I watched a daddy out there with his little girl in his arms. He's like, we do stupid stuff with babies. You know, I often wish that the baby was just not there for a moment so we could just get a person going, you know, it's like innocence does that for us, right? But I want to go to this passage because it's Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry, his calling, which we're going to talk about. He's at the very beginning, he's at the very start of things. And I want to note before we read the passage, Jesus has not done anything yet. Unless you believe some of the, the, the old uh, pseudepigraphal writings, which are the extra things that say, oh, it was a little clay dove Jesus made as a child, tossed it up and it flew away. You know, I had lots of options there as to what happened because people can't bear the thought that he had done nothing until this moment. Nothing public, nothing visible, nothing that someone could say, now that's a good speaker, right? He'd done nothing, nothing, zero. And we come to a fascinating moment in the scriptures. John the Baptist is the feature of the scriptures kind of leading up to this, though it starts with Christ and then it leads into the story leading up to this moment. 
And before Jesus reads the great pronouncement in the synagogue where he says, you know, um, to set the captives free, you know, to bring good news to the poor, before he does any of this, any miracles, any wedding at Cana wine changing, which is such an awesome miracle. Let's just note that. Wine. Thank you, Lord. That was awesome. Um, He comes to this moment. He comes to this moment. Now, oh, look, you are already ahead of me. Look at you going through. Uh, I'll tell you what, we'll stay here. That's good. Thank you, Tom. The man, Tom. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. Basically, it was like, dude, seriously, you want me to baptize you? And Jesus is like, can we just do this? That's it. That's the summary. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Now, if you just go back to that image, that front image at the beginning of this, I want to just point something out. Any art lovers in here? You know, I I meet with God in the space of singing, but I also meet with God in art galleries. It's kind of my space. I remember walking into the Sistine Chapel in Rome with my wife, my loving wife beside me. We walk into the Sistine Chapel and I look around and I literally, you know, there's fake saying, you know, we say I cried, I wept, but you're like, no, you didn't. You had wet eyes. That's most you had. No, I actually cried. I started to cry. Like tears going down my face as I'm looking around. My wife looks up at me and, and you'd figure she'd say something like, wow, this is really touching you, isn't it? Like, the Holy Spirit's really here for you. That's so awesome. That's, I love how God made you, Dan. I love that. <laughs> Instead, this, this is my wife, right? She looks at me and she goes, you're so weird. <laughs> and she walks in. It was awesome. It was awesome, right? And, uh, but it's my thing. I love, love art. Love art, right? Because I believe art is prophetic. Images are prophetic, right? This is one of them. Caravaggio, an Italian painter. I just, just love the way that he painted these images. And uh, you'll see in this picture some fascinating elements about what, what I want to share. You'll see a few different uh, experiences going on. This isn't the baptism painting. This is the moment that Judas betrays Jesus. Okay? And you'll see why I've chosen this one in a minute. You'll see the face of Christ. There's sadness on it. But there's also a sense of peace that Caravaggio tries to put into the face of Jesus in the face of the betrayal of a close friend, right? You'll see Jesus in the middle of this with serenity yet pain. You'll see Judas kind of looking off into the distance. He's not even looking at Christ. He's seeing something else beyond it. And we know this because of all the art scholars who analyze it and apparently talk to Caravaggio or something. But um, you'll see him looking off into the distance. You'll see back in the right, you see the person holding the lantern. It's actually Caravaggio's face put on Peter. He's like, who do I want to be in the picture? I'm going to be on Peter. You know? And he actually was connecting himself with, with Peter's, Peter's process that was about to happen. On the far left, I love it. It's the Apostle John. Freaking out. <laughs> I love it. Caravaggio's like, what should I have John do? I'm going to have him freaking out. 
because you should be freaking out. He's like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, right? And you see these different kinds of images around this, this not tranquil Christ, disturbed Christ, but at a place of peace. And I thought, this is such a beautiful image. What happens in this moment in the baptism that is about to empower Jesus to finish well through crucifixion, betrayal, the hatred of the masses who celebrated him? What is going to give him the strength that he needs to do the long haul? Now, let me just be straight with you. I'm 53 years old. And as soon as you hit half a century old, you could give a rip about all sorts of things. You start telling people to get off your lawn. Get off my lawn. (laughs) Get off. Off. I don't even care anymore, right? But as soon as you hit that, you just start getting straight because you're probably closer to going home than you are to when you entered the whole story, right? It's a long time ago. I barely remember it. Um, And so really, if I had a dream for what I could do this weekend with us as a community, because I see this as a we, I would like to be the guy that could care less about how awesome your next worship set is. I mean, I do care, actually. (laughs) Please scratch that from the, the record. I care that when you are 80 years old, you are looking me or someone else in the eye with a love for Jesus that has grown and flourished, having walked well through seasons of pain and rejection and brokenness and difficulty. Not cranky and mad at the church and everybody for doing what they did, but whole flourishing, the fragrance of Christ increasing in you. That's all I care about. That's all as we age, we start to see emerging is valuable. Does my wife, when I look her in the eyes, I know we're going to have the things that we have as husbands and wives. I need her to feel in her bones that she is a loved woman. That's all I care about. I care about my kids always seeing me as the safest place on planet earth. I just care about that. That's what we want to take with us across the line. I, 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 I want to come to that moment of passing away. And I, well, I had a dream years ago where I was on a hospital bed and I was sitting up on the hospital bed and in the dream, a doctor said to me, uh, we're going to put you out now for surgery and there's a very high chance that you won't wake up. This is happening in the dream. And I remember in this dream, this surge of peace and joy flooded my soul. And I said to the doctor in my dream, like my grandfather and my father before me, I've been preparing my whole life for this moment, ready to go. And I'll tell you, man, I was just, I was just undone. I woke up crying again. I was just so thankful for that sweetness. And it came back to How did Jesus go through the trials and tribulations that come with being a disciple, being a parent? My goodness, how many of you have found parenting really easy? Like, who have kids? This is a piece of cake. Harmony, raise your hand. Raise your hand. I knew you were an angel, but I didn't want to actually say it. Hard. How many of you have found... Okay, that's great. Parenting, difficult. It's very difficult. The phrase rocket science comes to mind, actually. Uh, mine are 20, 26, 24, and 21. And I am just like, you know, what's your, what's your favorite thought about parenting us, Dad? Uh, that I survived, and so did you. 
Like really, just that, look at us breathing. This is awesome, you know? And get, doesn't get better than that, kids. High fives, get out of here, you know? And uh, I'm telling you, it's a circus in here. If you knew how much I'm trying not to go random, it's like, hold mm, the reins, but I'm with the vineyard friends. Okay, so what enabled Jesus to do that? What empowered, what is the basis the solid foundation on which we can build a life, guys. It's what happens in this moment. Jesus has done nothing, and this moment happens, and it's recorded in the three Gospels that record his baptism, and they all record it with the exact same language, so you know everybody knew what had been said to Jesus, what was put on his business card before anything else was. See, if I was going to introduce the Son of God to the world, if I were God, how many of you have ever thought, oh, if I had a God, if I were God, I'd have done this better, you know? If I'm going to announce the Son of God to the world and the Holy Spirit's going to come like a dove and everyone's going to hear it and feel it and vibe, I'd be like, ready, deal. King of freaking kings is here. That's what I'd have said if I were God. Put some reverb on it, Lord of lords, deal with that. You know, Son of the Most High God, Right? Prince of peace, mighty God, wonderful counselor. Remember those phrases from the Old Testament? Of course you do. That's who you're dealing with, right? I don't like giving it the guts. But instead, the first words we have recorded that the Holy Spirit speaks to Jesus, he burns, he etches into his business card so Jesus, if he ever forgets who he is, can remember it, is this is my boy. This is my son. It's all mine. This is my son. And in that moment, we can put it up there on the screen. Uh, if you flip down to that first one, this is my son. He speaks a word of identity to him that will never leave Jesus. It's the foundation for our authority. It's the foundation for our capacity to walk through the trials and suffering. See, we read over these passages about the cross and about the, the Via Dolorosa, the way to the cross, and all the things that lead up to it, all the times when Jesus is standing in front of the crowd and he has an opportunity to win them, and instead, he says something harsh that makes them, like, we can't take this. What gives him the power to stand in front of a big crowd when he could have all the accolades and all the applause and people saying, you're awesome, and he says, oh, by the way, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And the crowd that was stepping forward before goes, okay, okay, we have a whack job here on our hand. We have a crazy man on our Who is this guy, right? And they're all stepping back, you know, okay, this is a true cult leader. Like, this is weird. And then the disciples, I love this moment. They're like, well, well, Jesus, uh, do you want to clarify that? Like, do you want to say anything more? <laughs> Jesus is like, yeah, no, no, I'm good. Do you want to leave me too? And Peter's, uh, do I want to? You have the words of eternal life. Where am I going to go? You know? Except he said it with more of a Yiddish accent. You have the words of eternal life. Where am I going to go? <laughs> right? And, she, and so he locks in. Why does he lock in? Because he loves what he's seeing in the eyes of Christ. And I believe it's why he was such a safe place for everyone who ever met him. Even the Pharisees who he ticked off. It's because of what happens in this moment. Jesus has on his business card, son, son, son. It's all he's got beneath his name. 
Now, I promise you, if it hasn't already happened, I personally think it's good for everyone to lose their job a few times in their life. I've lost a number of jobs, never because I did something wrong. I just want to clarify that. Oh, this lacks some basic skills here. But um, <laughs> always because the money ran out or something had to move on or the vision changed or whatever. And I am telling you, they were the most difficult moments of my life. And some of them happened at the worst possible time. Anyone who's ever lost a job is pretty sure it's the worst possible time for that to happen. And those moments are so reorienting after they are so disorienting. I've had, I've had businesses fail. I've had all sorts of these moments that I look back on and I think, oh my goodness, they should have been so hard, and every one of them, why is the taste still sweet in my mouth now? Because it was so dark, and it was, these were the moments when I remembered who I was and what gave me value. And God will, I promise you, across your lifetime, He'll just take your business card and at the end of every night, and He'll say, thanks so much. That's, that's really a nice business card. Look at all that you wrote under your name. Oh my gosh, you're, you're a worship leader. You're, oh gosh. You even had a vineyard worship, and like, this is awesome. You guys, this is amazing stuff on this card. You write songs, you're a songwriter. Oh, isn't that, that's, that's great. Just, just give me, you go to sleep. I have some things to do. <laughs> you know, messing with it. You get it all crumpled up when you wake up in the morning, you know, and all it says is son or daughter. That's it. Jesus has this etched into his business card as he starts. Guys, I, I, again, 53-year-old talking to you, it will never get sweeter than that or better. So don't anchor your identity in anything else, any role you have. Because this is what the scriptures mean when they talk about calling. When it says make your calling and election sure, it's not saying make your role, your job, the stage God's given you, make that really sure. Make sure you know where your passions are, what your strengths are. Make sure you take the, you know, the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram test and the, the, you know, the strength finder test and make sure you do the colors test. I don't know what all there is like. And the one with the bears and the animals, right? Apparently I'm a golden retriever. I'm like, my wife's like, you're such a golden retriever. I'm like, really? That's the test you're going to go to at this moment, right? Well, you're, you're kind of part beaver too. And I'm like, Stop it. You know, but it's all these, you know, we go through this and it's about our passions. Guys, I firmly believe that sometimes our passions are getting smack in the way of the will of God for our life. We should chew on that and growl over it for a little bit. Sometimes our dreams, we have allowed to displace the invitations of God. I'll talk about that in a moment. Son or daughter, it's all we get, it's all we'll ever get. And unless we growl over that, we hum over it, we sit with it, we allow the love of God to entrench us in it and entrench it in us, we will always be taking identity from our roles, from our congregations, from the size of them, from the apparent success of something we created or didn't. Are you with me? We'll always be drawing it from the paychecks, from accolades. We'll always be drawing it unless we've settled this issue. I thought, as a 53-year-old, it was settled. I really did. I've been walking with Jesus for a long time, for a few decades now. And then just a few weeks ago, another crisis emerges. My wife's health, we're going through some health issues. We prayed for her, thank you. Another crisis emerges. Another crisis emerges with one of my children. Another crisis emerges with work, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, I'm like, 
Who am I? Who am I? I don't even know who I am anymore. What's my identity? Do I even trust you? Do, do you even care? I'm asking all the same questions over again. Now, I do think I've come somewhere because I now have tools and experience to know how to handle those moments. But to say they don't happen again in the heart, I don't lose my orientation. I don't lose true north. Well, that's not true. I still lose it often. But hopefully it's less and less. I keep coming back to this reality to focus on I am your son. I am your son. How many of you have ever found your minds wandering when you're praying? Like just, <laughs> like I'm in a room full of creative leaders, like every hand in the room. <laughs> uh, isn't actually prayer wandering with God in your thoughts? I, I mean, it is. You know. Find your minds wandering. I find it really helpful. One of the, the again, the traditions, John Wimber would have, would have said something like this as well, but I found this helpful in some of the other traditions. If your mind is wandering, find an anchor word and keep repeating it every time your mind wanders when you're in prayer. Okay? And you know what a great one is? You are my father and I am your daughter. Or you are my father and I am your son. Just keep, just keep, let it reorient, let it bring your thoughts back, right? I'm afraid, I'm afraid. And what happens when you're afraid? Anyone's thoughts get clouded? <laughs> you can barely think straight when you're scared, when something's said. Use those words, keep coming back to them, keep anchoring in this precious identity that God gives you. It's the first thing God does for Jesus. Now, here's the funny part. It's not funny, actually, <laughs> but here's the strange part. Jesus has not done anything so God has affirmed his identity, and that makes sense to us. Okay, you're my son. But then the next thing happens. God decides that he needs to expand on this for Jesus. That he needs to just take this a little farther. And he says, whom I love. It's a word of affection. Now, we all have different parenting worlds that we grew up in. How many of you actually read some of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality before you came here? That, some of that book. Okay, some of us have. Sometimes to go forward, we have to go back, right? Some of us got affection simply because we were somebody's child. Some of us experienced affection because we did certain things right. And then we got some sense of warmth from the parent that we primarily most craved it from. Typically, we have one parent that gave it and another parent you kind of had to extract it from, and that one you craved it from, you figured out some coping mechanisms as to how to get some sort of affirmation as a child. I'm not a psychologist, but I know it's true. I see it in people everywhere, and I've seen it in my own life. The one you couldn't get it from, and we tend to form our lives around finding mechanisms to get people to, and one of them is, and I know it's a shock to many of us in the room, that many of us are on stages because we need to be because it helps people to like us maybe a little more, or talk to us or know our name, or we'd never say that out loud. We might not even think it consciously, but you'll know it when someone says something and all of a sudden you feel filled up by a compliment. <laughs> and you go, oh, that, that, that mattered to me more than maybe it should have. And then if you hold on to it long, it's like glory is like plutonium. It, it's, it's powerful stuff, but it'll kill you if you hold on to it too long, right? And in this moment, Jesus is being identified. This is my son. You're my child. This is where it begins, and it's where it will end, Jesus. I'm convinced that that last moment on the cross, was it was, it was a moment of complete lucidity for Christ, that he was content with being God's son. He was just content with being his boy, because there was nothing else to hold on to. There was nothing else to get a buzz from, any energy from. 
And he affirms him and he says, you've got my affection. Before you do anything, Jesus, I don't just really love you because you're my son. I really like you. I'm really fond of you. I think you're awesome. I love you. I adore you. I think about you a lot. That's what you do. You know, Harmony was talking about being distracted by God. I, I really care about you. I, I don't know. I have other words for it. I think about someone you deeply love. There's no performance to this. I tell my children all the time, guys, you're not going to make me love you less. Like, it's never going to happen. There's nothing you can do. Just don't hurt me, like, really bad, or the people I like, you know, don't do crazy, crazy things. Because that'll test it, but that's all it will do. I'll still love you as much. Like, you will, you will not be more loved by God than you are at this moment, period. You just won't, no matter what happens, no matter what happens. And so he expresses this affection, and we think, why does the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, because Christ is apparently his last name, the Lord Jesus Christ need to be told he's God's son and need God to then continue it with who I love. This is what God's declaring to the world. There's no kingly title in it. There's no messianic title. There's no job description in it. It's all about my child and I have a lot of affection for you. Now, I think to myself, even now as I'm talking, why would I linger here? Because guys, it takes a lifetime to be loved and to learn to be loved. It takes a lifetime. Um, one, writer said that, uh, one writer said that the entire curriculum of life is built for us to learn to receive the love, the affection of God for us. And that is actually your highest calling and only calling. And we get to facilitate that for people. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. So it's worth time and it's worth waiting on the Holy Spirit for it's worth talking to God about if it's an area that feels broken in you, that you feel like your receptors aren't all open to just being valued and loved. Now, why does this matter? When Jesus walked toward the cross and God knew that that was going to be part of his story, he needed him to have something so solid inside of him that, he, that no matter what happened, it would not turn him from his course. I now have the privilege of having some age behind me. I don't know if I have the wisdom of a sage. I certainly have the age of a sage, right? I have some wisdom, hindsight behind me. I've pastored churches. I've been a worship leader. I've worked with people. Guys, I have watched a lot of people fall away. I've watched a lot of strong leaders, fellow worship leaders, fall away. And they didn't fall away by some big moral failure. They fell away because life got hard. They fell away because uh, they were part of our church and then Dan moved away, which changed some other dynamics, et cetera. And then their church became not really the church that they had signed up for. Anyone know that? When your church changes under your feet, et cetera, et cetera. And so they kind of got isolated. And when they got isolated, they kind of fell away because there was no, nowhere to go and they didn't have their same friends and da da down their networks and blah, 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 blah. They had built their faith on the psychological energy of the community. And I have to live with something. When I go through my examine times, sometimes uh, you can take these, it's called an examine of conscience, where you deal with your sorrows as well as your joys. And one of my great sorrows is that there's a subset of people in my life, some that I have seen thrive over a lifetime in their discipleship. I've watched them go on and become spiritual juggernauts. They can do anything anywhere. 
I've also watched a lot of people that looking at them and looking at their lives, I hear a voice in the back of my head. Who was their pastor? Who discipled these people? Who discipled them in what the faith was all about so that they could withstand the storms of life? And I don't live under the weight of that like it's only my burden to bear. Life happens, people make choices, yes. But I do know this, if I could go back and change anything, I would talk about this, and I would work until they were rooted and established in love. Ephesians 3. For this reason I kneel before the Father. 14. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And here's what Paul's prayer is. Paul understood this because Paul was loved into the kingdom. He wasn't argued into the kingdom. He didn't come in philosophically first. He was knocked off his darn horse. We're going to talk about him tonight. He was laid flat in the dust and tasted the love of God. And that is why Paul fills all of the epistles with the language of love. Why do I do this? Because Christ's love compels me. And I don't believe he simply meant Christ's love for you compels me. He said Christ's love for me compels me. He who is forgiven much loves much. And he was settled. He was settled in this issue. I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, rooted and established in love, a tree that's roots go deep is drawing life from something underneath the soil. And Paul was saying, if you are not drawing it from you being loved, being a son or daughter, being a, experiencing the affection of the Father, you will draw it from somewhere else. That you being rooted and established in love will then have power together with all the Lord's holy people. And then he keeps going on about love to grasp how wide and how long and how deep is the love of Christ and to know that love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He's saying if you don't get love, you can't experience the full measure of being filled with the presence of God. And that's why it's so vital what we do and that we as individuals, as followers of Jesus, as sons and daughters, keep opening ourselves to the love of God, even if we don't know what that means. How many of you have said things like, Lord, pour your love more into me. I want to open myself more to your love, but you feel like they're just words just going out there. You're not really sure what you mean by that. My experience has been that it is in the midst of suffering and pain that I most taste and see the love of God. When my heart is that vulnerable and I've got nothing else to rely on, that I'm not feeding, that I'm not feeding at inadequate banquet tables. Even though I get a buzz still if someone says, hey, that was a great message. Guys, I would really love if some of you said that to me when we're done. But you don't have to. You don't have to do that. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just saying, I would love it, but I'll tell you what, I'd love it a lot less than I used to. I love it a lot less. Because I'm grateful that I get to participate, but I'm more grateful 
that the love of God, this is, the Lord has said this to me. He said, I just want you to say this because it's, it's your life message. You hold on to this. It is the center of the language of calling. Now, let me just say this. Calling, we have made mistakes talking about calling in the body of Christ. We've made mistakes. And I think it's because we have confused these words. Make your calling and election sure. Calling, calling. Have you found your calling, etc.? I think it's more culturally saturated than it is biblically. Calling scripturally, biblically, has to do with being aware that you are a son or daughter of God. That's what calling has to do with. If we make calling a noun, if you are called to be a worship leader and you're on a stage, you're in your calling, right? But what happens when you're off? Oh my gosh, they don't need me to do that anymore. Something changed, et cetera, et cetera. Now I'm out of my calling, right? Anyone ever use this language, heard this language? Like, I'm in it, now I'm out of it. Oh my gosh, I'm in it. I think I'm in it. I th- am I in it? I think I'm in it. I'm in my element. That's my calling, right? This is, oh wait, now a job change happened. I got fired. Oh my gosh, who am I? Right? What's my business card say? I don't, uh, that's if we make calling a noun. If calling is a verb, then God says to you, hey, Sam, I call you by name, by the way. Remember, Jesus always calls us by our names. He doesn't call us by our roles. Gosh, I really need a pastor over here. Come on over here, pastor. Sorry, what's your name again? Good. I'm going to put you there. Right? He never does that. He calls you by name. And so he says, Sam, is it okay if I use your Sam? Thanks, bro. Um, he says, Sam, I need you, having experienced all you've experienced to date, over here now. So I call you, verb, by your name, and I call you and I say, Sam, I need you here now. You are right in the middle of your calling because you have been invited by God into that new space. You know, I love to talk about passion and finding your passions and being in your passion and doing all of those things, but I'm just telling you, sometimes that is just sopping what with the culture we're in. Joseph did not want to be in Potiphar's house, period, and he was smack in the center of his calling. Didn't want to be in jail interpreting dreams. Seriously, Lord, I'm the guy that my dad had the Technicolor, you know, dream coat made for and stuff. The dreams of the sheaves bowing down and things like that. Remember that time? That guy, right? Yeah, I remember that guy. His name's Joseph. And Joseph, I need you here now. And the only answer is yes. How can we give the answer of yes and walk to the next cross or the next resurrection? How can we get to that place? It's by knowing this is the core of our identity. You are a son or daughter. You are loved. God has affection for you. He loves you no matter what heaven or hell is breaking loose around you. He just loves you. He loves you. And if you settle that, then you won't go as your first thought in the midst of pain to questioning the goodness of God, which is on the altar in our generation. And it's why I believe many are falling away because they're questioning the goodness of God. The problem of evil is not as strong as the love of God. When God gets a hold of your heart, you can power through anything. When I first came to faith, I was struggling. I've lived in my head a lot of my life. I loved philosophy and I loved you know, art and I loved you know, being in these debates and everything else. And I was at Penn State University And I was trying to walk out my faith. I had said yes to Jesus, was still dealing with the lordship question. (laughs) Apparently you can do those. (laughs) Say yes to Jesus and still struggle with the lordship question. 
And I was working things out and I was in these philosophy and religion classes. And of course the faith was just being embattled on every side. And I went home uh, one summer and I was so confused. I was just distraught inside. I, I, I couldn't figure out, you know, what Jesus was about and if I was going to be a Christian, etc. And I was sitting on my bed at home and kind of sitting up where my back was on the headboard, right? Just sitting up on my bed. And I was just, just quietly, I had my hands open, I was talking to God, and, and I'm 100% sure I didn't fall asleep, that this wasn't a sleeping thing that happened next. All of a sudden, boom, I began to rise out of myself. Now, in occult terms, that's astral projection, right? For me, I didn't know what was going on. Like, I was coming outside of myself, and I was actually seeing myself below myself, and I literally thought, true story, I literally thought, Oh, it was a rational thought. This is what happens when people die. Oh, huh, later, you know, <laughs> bye. Like, I, I, this is what happens when people die. And, and, and I started to rise above myself and I was above myself on the bed looking back and I heard a voice. And this voice sounded as sweet as any voice that I've ever heard. It was so tender. It had so much affection to it, or so it seemed. But it was dark at the same time. And I heard the voice say, wasn't addressing me. This is what the voice said. He's mine. He's mine. In this sweet voice, he's mine. But it felt dark and wrong. And all of a sudden, my body, my body above my body, you can tell it's hard to describe this, body above my body started to vibrate shock, like violently vibrating. And I slam back into myself and I sit up and my hands are out and I'm just in shock. And I hear a voice that to this day is the voice I am listening for at every turn in every moment of my life. I hear this voice say, he's mine. And the room filled with what was almost palpable, like liquid love. And my soul filled with love. And I sat there in that moment, knowing that I will do anything. I promise you, and it scares me to say it, but here it is. When I am 95 years old, I am going to be walking with Jesus because he captured my heart. Love won me. And love is winning you. And love established and rooted in your heart will enable you to say yes to the next anything that faces you. It was a moment where the indwelling Christ went from this theological idea into the presence of love, strengthening me. And at that moment, the gift was it was a deeply emotional experience, right? It was burned into me <laughs> that I am loved and valued. The reality is across my journey, that experience, that emotion has left at many times. I felt kind of in a vacuum. Hey, how about that warm fuzzy? Because I could use it like right now. This is terrifying. And he goes back to that moment. He says, I rooted you and I established you in love. This is how you move forward as one of my leaders. And then, of course, the last one. God decides he's going to expand further. This is my son, who I love. Then he says, by the way, before you do anything, before you play your instrument, before you do anything, I'm really pleased with you. <laughs> like, I'm pleased with what you do. And you're like, yeah, but I haven't done anything yet. That's the point. I'm really pleased. 
well done, well done. You're like, yeah, I haven't done anything yet. <laughs> no miracles, no anything, no shiny lights, no, you know, nothing for anyone to remark on, to tell stories about how I did this or that, you know, yeah, good. I'm just really happy with you. So I want you to start there. I'm already pleased. You're not earning anything from me. And by the way, Jesus, you don't need to court the crowd to get the buzz of affirmation. No more courting of the crowds. Worship leaders don't court the crowd. Your affirmation doesn't rise and fall on how that last set went, even though it feels like it does. Right? It doesn't. You're already affirmed. Would you stand with me?